Welcome to the Wirecard Saga, a podcast with Tom Fox and Mikhail Ryder-Gordon, Managing Director of Institutional Ethics and Integrity at Affiliated Monitors. Over this podcast series, we're going to take a deep dive into the Wirecard Saga to see where it may take us literally across the globe. Mikhail Ryder-Gordon and myself continue our exploration of all things Wirecard with our in our episode number 22, Junction Junction. We take a look at Russia influence, Oliver Hargreaves, OneCoin, Alucci, and Kurtz flies for fresh air. I know you will enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Welcome back to another episode of the Wirecard Saga where I'm joined by my colleague, Mikhail Ryder-Gordon, Managing Director at Affiliated Monitors. Mikhail, what do we have today? Thank you, Tom. So much has happened in the last two weeks. Again. And I had intended to get this episode out to you and our listeners last week. Sorry about that. Sorry, listeners. I'm calling this episode Conjunction Junction. Those of you who grew up with Schoolhouse Rock, this is for you. Why this week's title? The ands, the buts, and the ors lead us to some connections. At last, we could also use adages such as actions have consequences, or bad beginnings for bad endings do make, or dishonorable people tend to reappear. Let's start with this one. Jan Marsalek, remember him? (laughs) How could you forget? He's believed to have fled to Russia and little conjunction, a little over a week ago, the Russian foreign ministry tweeted about it. Is this a mic drop moment? Could be. On a Friday morning, March 26th, if you're keen on specific dates, Maria Zakharova, spokeswoman for the Russian foreign ministry, tweeted about Jan Marsalek and his whereabouts. Russia aimed this precision tweet right at the German Bundestag investigative committee. Zakharova tweeted, quote, Speculation about the allegedly close relationship of the managing director, J. Marsalek, with the special services of Russia is causing confusion. We warn Germany against politicizing this history. Warn? Oh, really? I don't know that it can be said Zakharova's tweet received quite the response the Russians may have intended. The IC seemingly was not intimidated. MP Yen Zimmerman, the SPD chairman of the IC, read the tweet out loud to the committee, yeah, in chambers, and subsequently told the German press agency, quote, today's statement by the Russian foreign ministry burst into our deliberations of the Wirecard investigation committee like a bomb. Why the Russian government now feels compelled to take the steps raises new questions. Instead of a clear rejection of possible connections, the Bundestag is apparently supposed to be intimidated by this warning revelation. IC MP Matthias Hauer went even further and told the same press agency, we are certainly not impressed by a Russian government tweet. I suppose the other groups see it the same way. After the tweet... A representative of the Chancellery was asked in a non-public meeting whether the Chancellor's office knew where Marsalek was precisely. 
Whilst the timing of the Russian Foreign Ministry's enigmatic tweet isn't yet fully understood, the veiled threat does tell us that inquiries in Germany, Austria, the US, Britain, Singapore, and elsewhere are indeed making sound progress. In fact, as you'll hear in a moment, aggregation of information and the unique juxtapositions that are emerging from it and are underscoring some of what we've known for some time and drawing attention to the scale of this global money laundering machine that was Wirecard. I mean, really? The multi-billion fraud is almost becoming just an unfortunate byproduct. The other thing this tweet from Zakharova helps to confirm is that Marsalik was a Russian asset of at least sufficiently high enough level use to warrant a spontaneous declaration from the foreign ministry itself. <laughs> Sadly, for amateur spooky Marsalik, gone are the days of Blake and Philby when service to the Soviet or Russian Empire guaranteed a middling dacha, a pre-retirement job of authoring tedious analytical reports for ministers who rarely read them, and ultimately a hero's plot in the Troikurovskoya or Kuntsevo cemeteries. Libahaba Marsalik sits in the Russian motherland as really nothing more than an unfortunate loose end. His was the rise of the former dropout IT manager who happened to land at a company with a CEO who wanted to make money at any and all cost. Marsalik was willing to launder money for the truly deeply reprehensible, and knew how to camouflage digital transactions to obscure the origins of said money. And that made Wirecard profitable. But Marsalik isn't the first to know of such methods, and he doesn't seemingly offer useful skills beyond this. There has been nothing to suggest Marsalik would be of any use to either Unit 74455 or 26165. Those are Russia's GRU's hacking unit. So what will the fancy bear do with its Austrian sausage that grows staler by the day? Oh, Jan, you really didn't think this through, did you? Spooky! You always keep me guessing. I never know what you are thinking. And for the one listener who just tuned in for the first time, I'm speaking of former Wirecard CEO Jan Marsalik. Go back to episodes 1 through 21. Okay, let's stay on the theme of Mr. Marsalik. Because halfway around the world, just a day before the Russian Foreign Ministry tweet, another Wirecard associate was found guilty in U.S. federal criminal court. Actually, two associates. Remember Ruben Wiegand? German national and Hamid Kalmi Ray Akavan. Go back to episodes 2, 4, 5, 7, and 10 if you can't remember these two. They were the ones closely tied to former Wirecard exec Detmar Nokelman, our thug executive, former CEO of Wirecard Payment Solutions, business partner with Bulgarian Christo Georgiev, he would deep ties to Bratva, that's the Russian mafia, and tied into dirty Cypriot-based bank Sada Bank and Georgiev and Nokelman, tying back to Vigand. Okay, remember all of this? Have I covered the cozy relationship between the Russian FSB and Russian organized crime yet? If I haven't, I may need to dedicate an educational episode on just this topic. It will so help you understand Wirecard's laundering model and nexus to transnational organized crime. If newsworthy events would 
just take a week or two hiatus, I could get to all these episodes I've promised. I still have to write up and record the one on gambling for you. Whew, sorry. Uh, okay, maybe we'll start with the Bratva and the FSB, because then the online gambling and the Novomatic episode will slot in behind it. Okay, promises, promises, but I really will try to get those knocked out in the next week or two for you. Okay, listeners, back to Vegan and Archivon. If you are struggling to remember what these two idiots got up to, they were indicted last year for scheming to deceive U.S. banks and other FIs into processing an in excess of $100 million in credit and debit card payments for the purchase and delivery of marijuana products. Cannabis, technically. Remember FBME and Wirecard New Zealand? Remember I told you how lucrative it can be for processors who know how to evade the major credit card companies' fraud detection systems and their transaction scanning that looks for illicit products people are tempting to buy with their credit and payment cards? Akavan and Vegan were great at recoding online cannabis purchases as being for, say, pet food, florists, and how can you forget Happy Puppy Box, huh? Yeah, now it's coming back to you. Okay, so Akavan and Vegan worked with others, call them co-conspirators, to create phony merchant accounts and establish Visa, MasterCard, merchant pay processing accounts with, mm, call them, one or more offshoring, aqu offshore acquiring banks. Then, they'd use the dozen-plus fake merchants as covers to process debit and credit card purchases of cannabis products. Now, what was shown in the trial evidence was a brilliant little piece of deception they cooked up. Agavan and Vegan put those pesky tracking pixels that online platforms and digital advertisers just love to embed in websites, you know, cookies, pixels, tracker, trackers, beacons, all those irritating attempts to violate your personal privacy and track your behavior across the web? Well, they used online tracking pixels to further the obfuscation of the pot purchases. Because customers, presumably frequently stoned, would later look at their credit card statements and then be confused by a charge that appeared they'd placed with Happy Puppy Box. Invariably, said high customers would then ring their banks to ask what the heck this charge was about and end up admitting they'd bought pot. Well, that could threaten the entire scheme for vegan, so Akavan and their colleagues, so... They reduced the chance of this happening by devising a scheme using online tracking pixels to track which users had visited the company's website. If a company customer had visited the company's website and went to the URL listed on their credit card statement, they would automatically be rerouted to a web page connected to the company so that the customer would understand what the real purchase had been for, i.e. cannabis, right? Stoner looks at the webpage and goes, Oh, yeah, I forgot. Brownies, cookies, oil, that blunt. All right. However, in order to hide the scheme, our criminals had to ensure that if a third party, such as a bank or credit card company investigator, visited the same URL of a phony merchant, they would not be rerouted and would therefore be unable to discern any connection between the phony merchant website and the company and or the sale of marijuana products. Hence, the tracking pixels. Brilliant. All right, I know these guys not only engaged in fraud and are tied into some serious organized crime, 
But you have to give them kudos for engineering this genius little reroute. Okay, all this to say, a U.S. jury on March 25th in New York's Southern District in Judge Jed Rakoff's court, yes, I'm a member of his fan club, found both Vigand and Akhavan guilty. It took them no time at all. Are we surprised? Akhavan and Vigand were each convicted of one count of conspiracy to commit bank fraud. Whilst sentencing will be in June, just for those not up on the U.S. attorney sentencing guidelines, their respective convictions carry a maximum 30-year prison sentence each. Now, I doubt they'll be sentenced to the full 30, but it's still a yawning number of years they likely face. Seven to ten, maybe? Now, the prosecutions of these two could have just ended there, with Vigand and Vakavan donning their orange jumpsuits and toddling off to stay at one of the friendly hostels run by the U.S. Bureau of Prisons. But, Vigand and Akhavan weren't just tied to Wirecard through no Coleman. In the trial, testimony from cooperating witnesses and transcripts of phone calls and emails emerged that link Vigand and Akhavan directly to Jan Marsalek. More than just a link, really, as according to one witness, Marcus Fuchs, former VP of Sales Digital Services at Wirecard, Ray Akavan and Jan Marsalek were besties, like longtime best friends. Let's take a gamble through the trial transcripts because there are three particular witnesses who provide critical testimony, and one of them has been serving as an FBI informant for a couple of years leading up to the arrest of Akavan and vegan. And that tells us even more. According to the court filings, among some 140, 140 co-conspirators of Akavan and Vigan are Wirecard AG, yes, named Wirecard AG, the company, and Jan Marsalek. However, charges have not been filed against any of the named 140. At least, not yet. First up on the cooperating witness list was the former CEO of Ease Technologies. Now, Ease, if you've forgotten, was the California-based online platform that serves as a cannabis marketplace. In fact, I think it's the largest of its kind in the U.S. Dispensaries posted their goods on Ease, and then customers would order a wide variety of cannabis products and have them delivered. So former Ease CEO James Patterson, after pleading guilty to conspiracy to commit bank fraud, cooperated with the investigation and testified for the prosecution at trial. Agavan and Weigen were working as consultants to Ease Technologies, and Patterson testified at trial that Agavan had actually threatened him, <laughs> taking a page from Nokelman, our local wirecard thug, had actually threatened him when Ease went looking for alternative payment processors. Now, Ease, the corporate entity, wasn't charged, but it did cooperate with federal investigation, and several other Ease employees also testified for the prosecution. Now, Ease leads to one of the starring witnesses, Oliver Hargreaves. Listeners, this bit comes with a caution uh, that some of this is just plain batshit crazy. You cannot make this stuff up. Okay. So Hargreaves, who is a British citizen and a UK-based payment processing executive, 
turned informant for the U.S. FBI, after being caught and charged for some other crimes. Let's just pause for a moment and take stock of what made Hargreaves willing to turn informant to the U.S. feds. Now, if any of you listeners have been hitherto unfamiliar with the OneCoin global cryptocurrency scam and the infamous Ruzsa Ignatova, Bulgarian self-proclaimed crypto queen, then take yourselves off to read and listen to the 2019 BBC investigative report into one of the most extraordinary Ponzi schemes ever. One that managed to defraud individuals from around the world of some 4 billion euros in about 18 months before Ignatova just vanished. Thousands of people lost and lost big. Some didn't take it well and have gone to great lengths to try to recover their money and or hunt down Ignatova. How does this relate to Wirecard? We'll get to the truly intriguing connection at the end of the episode. However, for now, back to Hargreaves. Oliver Hargreaves ran afoul of U.S. law enforcement when he attempted to extort $30 million on behalf. <laughs> yeah, extort $30 million because you know so many people have that sitting in their side pocket. Okay. Oh, let me just open my handbag, hon, and I'll get that for you. Okay. Extort $30 million on behalf of an ex-boyfriend of Ignatova's, Gilbert Armenta, a lawyer out of Florida who was a key figure in one-coined money laundering operations. Hargreaves paid a former British Special Forces guy, turned private muscle, to hunt down this $30 million debt, or so Armenta claimed. Armenta apparently thought that a target of his extortion had stolen from him. It was nothing like fraudster on fraudster crime. If Hargreaves could collect the money, he'd get a 30% cut. So back when OneCoin's massive fraud became known in the fall of 2017, Armento was indicted by a U.S. federal grand jury on multiple counts of, well, money laundering, extortion, attempted extortion, conspiracy to commit extortion, all right, at least he's consistent, folks, and conspiracy to commit wire fraud. According to prosecutors, Armenta had assisted in the execution of the OneCoin fraud scheme by, among other activities, arranging for bank accounts to be opened in Latham, establishing and administrating OneCoin pool accounts at various international banks, transmitting OneCoin scheme proceeds through bank accounts located in the U.S. and other jurisdictions, and, of course, making various misrepresentation to banks regarding the source of the funds for the purposes of laundering the OneCoin scheme proceeds. I mean, it's a Ponzi scheme after all. you got to do something with that money. Now, doesn't this all sound just too familiar? But Armenta also conspired with others to use, well, threats of physical harm to attempt and collect payments, well, that's the extortion part, through international wire transfers particularly from an individual in the UK whom they believed had stolen business proceeds originally intended for the transfer. Okay, that's how Wire and that's how Hargreaves gets caught. Conspiring with Armenta and as part of his plea deal, agrees to be wired up by US feds investigating Weigand and Akavan. 
why would the U.S. feds think that the one coin people have anything to do? All right, we'll get to that. So Hargreaves testified against Vigan and Akamon, saying that it was he who had worked with them to facilitate the concealment scheme for the benefit of Ease, the cannabis platform Patterson ran. But get this, kids. Hargreaves admitted to having been cooperating with the feds since back in the fall of 2018. He told prosecutors in the Akavan-Vigan case that Wirecard helped facilitate concealment accounts at banks in Europe and launder from illicit sectors. In the trial, he told of first getting involved with ease and its need to conceal processing its customers' payments for pot back in 2017, when, wait for this, he was working for a Malta-based payment processing company that helps sectors like pornography and gambling. Oh, where have we heard this before? Huh? Yeah, deja vu. Hargreaves specialty? Building those fake websites for shell companies that allowed customers around the world to purchase the illegal and the illicit but have it appear on their credit cards as well. Flowers or face cream or, of course, the ubiquitous happy puppy box. His team, he said, would create seemingly legitimate websites for shell companies, including, I love this part, hiring third-party companies that paid gaggles of people to click on sites to simulate traffic. And he knew which European bank executives to tap who'd be willing to either direct or allow those gray market transactions through their institutions. In other words, he knew how to corrupt or identify corrupt bankers who would allow laundering to occur. It's a skill of sorts. Hargreaves dropped some other intel at the trial, like how Akavan and Jan Marsalek were longtime besties and how wirecard managers would offer to make deposits for Weigand. And it was Akavan's swapping of friendship bracelets with Marsalek that led to Hargreaves meeting Marsalek. Hargreaves testified that he knew about Akavan's online porn business, if you've forgotten how Ray Ray built his empire, go back to the old episodes. Okay. And found out from Akavan that he and Weigand had just signed on to consult for ease. Hargreaves told the jury that in early February 2018, he, Weigand, and Akavan met in a hotel room in London to talk through a strategy on reducing chargebacks on customer credit cards. You know, banks rejecting the transactions or customers claiming to their banks not to know how they'd order porn or pot. Remember Visa finding Wirecard back in 2009 for excessive chargebacks? Go back to episode three. Who showed up at this hotel strategy meeting in London? None other than Jan Marsalek, trailed by another Wirecard employee. According to Hargreaves, the strategy was largely one of what Wirecard and its executives did best already. Process payments through shell companies and banks with sympathetic executives. This tried-and-tested formula was ultimately presented to Ease and Hargreaves given the go-ahead for him and his team to organize shell companies, complete with fake business plans, forged website traffic, and even, I so love this, customer service phone lines. Your call is important to us. Before sending account applications to Wirecard and several other European banks. Court documents show the FBI watching Weigand in 2018 transit back and forth between L.A. and Munich, 
home of Wirecard, and then nip over to Zurich before returning to Los Angeles. At the trial, Hargreaves recounted that Wirecard didn't think some of the fake sites his team had created were sufficiently believable, saying they, quote, didn't pass muster, and told of Marsalek, suggested we make neutrocytes, you know, like the fake nutraceutical sites Marsalek and Wirecard execs had set up that had proved so effective for them long before Hargreaves came on the scene. During the trial, tapes of conversations Hargreaves recorded with Weigand were played, including a phone call about Wirecard. It was taped in the spring of 2019, and Hargreaves asked Weigand about the negative press and short-seller reports and how it was impacting Wirecard. Hargreaves wondered how well Wirecard and Marsalek were weathering these stories, referring to the investigative reports on Wirecard as sort of a scandal. <laughs> Little did he realize what scandal would really come to mean. <laughs> so, Feigen and Hargreaves chitter-chatter on this tape about the financial times, short sellers, boffin. Yeah, even our favorite useless regulator gets to look in. And this is 2019! They use some non-FCC-approved expletives, which is why I'm not reading the transcript directly to you. And then, I think this is my favorite part, Vigan tells Hargroves, quote, Everyone is still on track. Management has not changed. Profits have grown very positively, at least according to the latest report. It's madness! To which Hargreaves responds, quote, I mean, you couldn't invent something like that, couldn't you? Feigen says, exactly. And it goes on from there. This was all in the spring of 2019, long before the October articles had been published, and nearly a year before the KPMG report would be issued. Now, further at the trial, Hargreaves also read out the emails he exchanged directly with Marsalek. Apparently, it was through Vigan's email that the U.S. pot dealers communicated with the payment processors from Europe. Now, Hargreaves read ex- extracts from his messages with Marsalek, evidencing Marsalek excoriating Hargreaves for using proton mail, end-to-end encryption, and it does self-delete, and instead tells him to send messages to EU processing, saying, this is Vigan's email address. At the trial, when asked by the AUSA which acquiring banks did he prepare fraudulent application packets for, Hargreaves replied, Wirecard! And when you did that, asked the prosecutor, who responded to you? Weigand! In other communications, Weigand spoke with Hargreaves of how difficult it had become to feed blocked or offensive payments into payment processing systems. He was forever having to set up new companies that Banks were becoming more and more suspicious, and one had to think carefully about how successfully to initiate high-risk transactions, and that one always had to come up with new solutions for potential customers. Winch, winch, winch. It is so hard being a criminal. (laughs) You already cue up the song. He works hard for the money. So hard for... Let's be honest. Hargreaves, Weigand, and Agavon were prosecuted for evasion techniques Wirecard had long ago perfected. Remember back in episode 4, when I told you about how Wirecard built its business processing for online porn and gambling sites like Full Tilt Poker and Poker Stars, sports betting sites, porn sites, via their signature Wirecard Group's Click-to-Pay online payment tool? 
Evading restrictions on banned transaction was the foundation upon which the Wirecard empire was built. And I know, I keep harping on it, but Wirecard was created as a business enterprise to launder money and provide mechanisms by which to evade bans on restricted industries. Even Hargreaves and Vigran knew this, yammering on about how, at Wirecard, basically anything was possible. Now, a former Wirecard manager, Jorn Leogran, is currently profiting from his association with the company, being the first to the post to publish a so-called tell-all book. In it, he confirms that between 2003 and 2006, Wirecard was running online gambling sites commerce through fake online companies, processing payments for the industry by making them appear to be flower shop purchases and so on. Erlia <laughs> Grand, that sounds like a confession to me. Did you run that text past your lawyer first? Uh-oh. Can you just imagine some of the conversations spouses were having after reviewing their monthly credit card statement? You spent $15,000 on flowers in a single transaction? Did we host a wedding or a funeral I don't know about? <laughs> Leo Grant also confirms that Wirecard learned as it evolved and began to diversify its fictional online shop fronts. Now, interestingly, Leo Grande does casually observe in his book that because Wirecard was heavily vested in money laundering and processing prohibited transaction was, quote, probably the reason why Jan Marsalek, like many other high-ranking Wirecard managers, never went to the USA in the years that followed. Years that followed what? Well, we come full circle to the Michael Shute case in Florida that I recounted way back in episode four. Because remember, for having overseen the laundering of millions of dollars in 2010, when the federal indictment came down and a plea entered, Shute got off with an astonishingly low sentence. Why? Because he cooperated with U.S. feds. So from 2010 onward, Wirecard execs suspected the U.S. was a no-go zone for them. Now, hold Florida to the side for a moment, right next to OneCoin, because we'll be back there in a moment. When Weigen, remember, a German national, was arrested, one of the friends who helped bail him was Marcus Fuchs. I mentioned him a moment ago, former VP Digital Service Sales at Wirecard. He prattled on about how tight Akavan and Marsalek were. But what also emerged from the trial was the particularly close relationship Marsalek held with Paul Paolucci, a manager with MasterCard. Weigand was said to have worked with Paolucci, who, according to documents, was heavily embedded with Wirecard. Now, this information squares with what the news outlet Berliner Zeitung reported from an email they'd seen between Burkhard Ley and Paolucci that Paolucci was a key contact at MasterCard for Marsalek. Now, the Weigand and Akavan trial was really just a sideshow, a bit like the shoot plea deal more than a decade ago, to get to the bigger fish and the much darker activities and people for whom Wirecard laundered money. The witness statements, the confessions, and the identifying of key people involved in money laundering are what's important here. Leniency for cooperating witnesses was on show. An enticement for others to come forward. Don't be shy. Offer a little cheese and the rats will come. 
Rumor in the U.S. financial world is the feds are only just warming up for what will be one hell of a takedown, and not one necessarily contained just within U.S. borders. Now, I haven't taken us down the rabbit hole that is North Korean sanctions busting and money laundering via drugs and arms trafficking, cryptocurrencies, and in-game gold farming, but let's just say Marsalik was not particularly discriminating with respect to clients Wirecard was willing to serve. Marsalik may have overseen this alternative economy housed within the corporate shell of Wirecard, but it was paid for by some of the least forgiving organizations on the planet. Now, remember back in episode three and four when I told you about the close ties between Wirecard and Cyprus-based FBME Bank? And recall in episode 13, I gave you a brief backstory on the former FBME exec, Andreas Kazamias, who specialized in concealing the nature of payments being processed, who moved over to Wirecard New Zealand, and how FBME and Mudalal Khuri, a Syrian-Russian banker, would be transformed into what was thought to be the dirtiest bank on the planet for a period of time, and how this all linked back to Wirecard via any number of different avenues. Okay, let's just step back into Florida for a moment. Former headquarters of Michael Shute and the Wirecard shell companies that link back to the UK and elsewhere. And remember some of the UK shell companies that were linked to Ido Raviv, who flew to Kazakhstan when British regulators were closing in? Well, another investigative report has been pulled together, this one by the Miami Herald and the McClatchy investigative reporters, taking from the FinCEN leak and other leaks. Now, I won't get into the full details here because we just don't have the time, quite honestly, but referred to as the top dog matter after the name of one of the companies out of Florida. And this ties to another massive money laundering and sanctions busting matter that whilst identified from accounts in Florida spanned to Syria, FBME Bank, they also share some overlapping interests with Wirecard. Now, that's not what the Miami Herald and McClatchy were focused on. But documents not part of the leak that they obtained back from 2011 show that this company, Top Dog, appeared to do oil business with companies tied to Syria. And some of these companies are found in a database of leaked confidential documents involving alleged Russian money laundering. <laughs> are we ever surprised? From the FinCEN files, details from at least two Top Dog SARs appear in a broader investigative memorandum requested in 2017 by the Cyprus Unit for Combating Money Laundering, known as MOCUS. MOCUS was seeking information on Top Dog and on transactions involving Kazakh fugitives, financiers of porn, and clients of the now-shuttered FBME Bank. You know most of the players Mocus was seeking info on already from prior episodes. Points to you if you can send me a message and tell me who you think these people are. Again, Kazakh fugitive, financiers of porn, and clients of the now-shuttered FBME Bank that tie directly to Wirecard. Double points. It's available. Cyprus corporate records show that at the date of the purported invoice between Top Dog and a Syrian national bank in, back in August 2011 draws a direct line to an entity owned by Sasha Levina, a Cypriot Ukrainian, who had acquired it just two months prior from Galina Alexandru, another Cypriot. Alexandru, 
through another Cypriot company, Wunderbliss Limited, is tied to Sergei Kroshenko. Kroshenko, put on the sanctions list by U.S. Treasury for his part in looting the Ukraine state assets back in 2015, owes his success to none other than Wirecard Bank and Jan Marsalek client, billionaire Ukrainian oligarch, fugitive from U.S. justice and current resident of Vienna, Dmitra Furtash. Listeners, in the absence of time in an entire separate podcast series, if you want more on Lavina, Alexandru, Top Dog, etc., go look them up at pep.org and OCCRP. They offer plenty of information on these idiots. Okay, and speaking of Furtash, another story broke last week. Now, this one, I have to say, can't possibly be anything but a really, really unfortunate coincidence because anything else involving (laughs) knowledge would be just so colossally stupid. Okay, here's what happened. Remember Wirecard Masalik and the Austrian BVT scandal that ties into Austrian right-wing political parties and the Ibiza scandal, right? Okay, and remember, we just talked about Furtash. Okay. And remember, the Ibiza scandal brought about a crisis for Austrian Chancellor Sebastian Kurz a couple of years ago. He got back in the saddle and is holding on to the chancellorship even as the latest BVT and Wirecard scandal unfold and the Novomatic scandal. And they shake the very foundations of his party and political relationships. So what happened? Austrian investigative news outlet, Zaksak, happened to be reviewing Chancellor Kurtz's travel itineraries and couldn't help but note that Kurtz took a day trip to Israel at the beginning of March of this year. And he happened to fly not on an Austrian carrier, no Austrian airlines there, but via a private chartered jet. Only it transpires the jet belonged to none other than Furtosh. <laughs> yes, that Furtosh. Fugitive from justice Furtosh. It's strange credulity to think Kurtz's people would have allowed him to rent from Furtosh if they'd known who owned the jet. But then again, now, the chancellor is claiming they booked the chartered flight via an operating company, Avcon Jet, and that Avcon just looks at available jets from owners who offer them up when not using them themselves. But let's face it, this looks so bad. And it seems a little obvious. Why? The jet, a Legacy 600, is decorated with the Ukrainian national colors. (laughs) Furtosh lives in Vienna. Oh, and then there is the fact that the business jet formally belong, while formally likely belongs to Avgon and Furtosh or one of his companies acting as a leasee, but Avgon advertises on its website its home base as being Vienna and Kiev. Furtosh was arrested in Austria in March 2014, but was refused bail of 125 million euro. The U.S. is demanding his extradition. He's tied directly into Wirecard with dozens of accounts set up for him by Marsalek. The U.S. is demanding his extradition, and the Chancellor of Austria is flying on the guy's jet. Awkward. 
So let's stay in Austria for a moment because yet more information has come out on the BVT scandal as it relates to Wirecard and Marsalek. Just over a week ago, it emerged that yet another BVT employee was working on the side of Wirecard, at least in terms of passing along confidential and classified information. A raid by investigators on the home of a BVT IT technician turned up dozens of mobile phones, in excess of 50 of them. Why does this matter? What does it have to do with WireGuard? The technician's expertise was sucking out data from mobile devices. And the technician is now suspected, having been arrested, of having read, passed on, and sold the data from the mobile devices. And they also found a nice fat USB drive full of things, full of data. And where did those devices come from? Senior Interior Ministry and Cabinet staff. Quote, affected people remember that they handed over the damaged devices to save data, but the BVT technician claimed that this wasn't possible and promised to destroy the devices. He probably didn't. Prosecutors suspect that this guy sucked all the data right out of the mobile phones and passed them on to none other than our other two d- dirty BVTers, including former department head Martin, Martin Weiss. And we know what Weiss did with all this juicy information. He handed it over to Wirecard and Marsalek. Ah, oh, Austria, get your house in order. This is so painful. All right. These days, no episode would be so We're going to go back across to Germany. These days, no episode would be complete without a check-in with uh, the German Bundestag IC, right? We sort of opened with it, but we sidetracked. First up, more from EY. Recall last episode saw EY, after testifying to the IC, having left a distinctly bad taste in the IC's mouth with their claim to victimhood refusing to admit failures, and withholding information that they suspected fraud at WireGuard dating back to 2016. And now it emerges they knew a tad bit more than they initially failed to mention. Hmm. Christian Ort, professional practice director at EY, right, had been at the hearings the other week and pretended to hear most of the names and events related to WireGuard that the IC asked him about as if they were entirely new to him. This feigned surprise by Ort raised suspicions within the IC that EY had something to hide. Now, EY's behavior was met with, let's face it, incomprehension, especially since EY also claimed that it had pointed out certain irregularities in the lending of Wirecard Bank and claimed it expressed criticism of the excessive behavior of Wirecard AG's managers with respect to Wirecard Bank. Well, at least as far as Wirecard AG on the decisions of Wirecard Bank. But as it has emerged, many consulting services to Wirecard that EY invoiced for remained unpaid. Oops. And in a tranche of documents that was regurgitated onto the IC's lap from EY, the roles of some of the EY consultants related to Wirecard remain, shall we call it ambiguous? EY apparently take, had taken the EIC's request for information on Wirecard as being adverse to their best interest. So they did what is not uncommon in litigation. That is, 
engaged in the rude practice of handing over volumes of requested documentation in no order whatsoever. They just vomited random data over to the IC with no indexing or organization. But as the IC has been combing through this information, they have stumbled upon some troubling email correspondence and documents. And all of this, of course, was regurgitated about EY, from EY's tranche of documents related to Wirecard audits. For instance, EY consultant George Fichtelberger, oh, that's unfortunate, isn't it? Who, according to the file, had known about some strange machinations at Wirecard, such as the change of a name. Not just any name. Fichtelberger is said to have known that Henry O'Sullivan, Hank, we've missed you, it's been at least a week since your name surfaced. O'Sullivan, he of Senjo, OCAP, various and sundry Isle of Man registered entities, and hopscotch friend and business partner of Jan Marsalek, apparently did not want records at Wirecard to show his real name. Instead, he wanted a fake name used in the Wirecard files. And EY knew this from their audits. According to an email that the IC surfaced from this vomit from EY, an email from the Wirecard Supervisory Board's legal advisor to Wirecard management turned up in the EY documentation saying, quote, as discussed yesterday, a code name should be used for all other emails and other references to O'Sullivan. Suggestion, Mrs. Corina Mueller. Now, EY is the auditor. They see documentation from the company renaming a key business partner to Wirecard, one who would receive tens of millions of euros in so-called loans from Wirecard, whose name was on or associated with a dozen entities, including deals in Singapore and Mauritius. They see a blatant attempt to conceal O'Sullivan's real name, and they don't think anything of it. So, for EY's rebranding efforts, will they attempt to position themselves as the most incompetent audit firm or the most corrupt? Oh, decisions, decisions. And as to O'Sullivan, being known as Mrs. Corina Mueller? Oh, Hank, or should I call you Frau Mueller? Have some dignity. All right, the IC's data woes with respect to being handed volumes of information at the last minute and in no order, well, these woes continued. Last Tuesday evening, the German Federal Ministry of Finance dumped on the IC 65 folders plus a USB stick full of data. This was followed on Wednesday evening, notice the nighttime, with another 42 folders of relevant files 24 of which were delivered to the Secret Service so that there was absolutely no possibility for IC members to view the files before the next day's hearings. And then on that Friday, 107 more file folders and another USB stick appeared. The IC meeting had to be suspended. Two secretaries of state were summoned, and finally it was decided the hearings would have to be extended. The IC was furious. This all occurred just prior to them hearing testimony from Boffin witnesses, no less than Felix Hofeld 
and Elizabeth Roegel. In a closed session, deputies Florian Tonkar, Daniel Baez, Fabio Damasi, and Kay Gottschalk vented their displeasure at what they saw as sabotage. And probably for the first time ever, all four parties in agreement. MP Hans Michelbach spoke to news outlet Berliner Zeitung and accused, actually accused, the Ministry of Finance of specifically attempting to hamper the IC's work. Uh, them some pretty strong words, in, at least in the world of German politics. MP Bayaz told another newspaper, it's been known for months that these files are really relevant to the investigation and the work of the IC. There is no objective reason why these files would have now been made available only at the last minute and so quickly. The impression arises that the Federal Ministry of Finance wants to sabotage the investigation and the work of the Committee of Inquiry. Yen Zimmerman told media outlets, it's obviously an annoying thing. Until now, the cooperation with the representatives of the federal government had been professional and constructive. Until now... So two state secretaries and explained the background to the committee were able to shed light on a, some of the file disgorgement a little bit. Only 50 folders could be delivered at that time as the release of documents from British regulator FCA were late and the classification of those files had taken a really long time. Now, nonetheless, opposition and CDU party members of the IC were visibly upset. There was talk of an own goal by the Ministry of Finance and an attempted foul play against the IC. Because there is no way of comprehensively comprehensively sifting through the files in such a short period of time. I mean, to understand this, the entire IC hearings were supposed to be over this month in April, early April. There may still be really relevant information and important clues in all of these folders and documents about the role of Boffin, for instance, and there still be more files to come. In fact, more are promised to be delivered this week. In total, more than a thousand folders have been sent from the Ministry of Finance uh, just in the past couple of weeks. And as for the decision on evidence concerning Boffin's management level, well over a hundred folders have suddenly been dropped on the IC. Only, as we well know, they've already in- interviewed quite a number of people about Boffin and Wirecard. So, two of the secretaries of state did at least address the IC, and in the short term there was discussion about uh, actually appointing the very controversial uh, Secretary of State, Mr. Kukas. Thankfully, they didn't. I think, I think they realized that, that there was a little bit of a conflict of interest there when it came to Wirecard. However, they did decide to summon employees of the Ministry of Finance who were responsible for this and demand some answers. But because of the delayed delivery of the files, the IC schedule is now a little wobbly. Why? The IC is under considerable time constraints because of the forthcoming Bundestag election. The governing parties have to end the taking of evidence, well, ideally, the end of this month. However, Finance Minister Schultz, who has his own election ambitions, has kind of cheesed the entire IC off because of how slow he's been to respond to their data requests. In fact, 
For example, a hearing of the bank supervisor, Rosler, was only made available to the IC after the hearings of the witnesses, even though he'd already been at the Ministry of Finance for months. But Ministry of Finance, Schultz, didn't make, him ava- uh, didn't make Rosler available. Witness interviews are now scheduled to be completed by the end of April, and the final report of the IC will be drawn up after that. Because after that, the election season starts, and a whole new Bundestag will be elected by the end of September. It's not to say that some of these members won't be re-elected, but as MP Tonkar said, unless the federal government's behavior fundamentally changes, the Committee of Inquiry may have to drag into the summer. (laughs) That will really impact elections. Now, Fabio De Masi said it's a mockery of the Committee of Inquiry to provide all these files on the Boffin management level only hours before the witness hearings. And, and so, what they did, they were supposed to hear from Hoffeld and Rogel twice. Once with the complete files and once, well, without. So they started without them. And uh, Hoffeld and Rogel will be called back to testify on April 13th. Now, Rogel, executive director of Boffin, gave a really weird testimony to the IC. Now, mind you, they couldn't ask a lot of questions because they didn't have the files in advance. But she introduced herself with only her first name, Elizabeth. You know, because she's like a household brand, like Beyonce or Prince. She tells the IC, we, Boffin, quote, don't have ongoing oversight of companies. We only supervise on a point-by-point basis, investigate whether there is insider trading and market manipulation, and we must report violation to the public prosecutor's office without delay. We have a very, very close cooperation with the public prosecutor. Do you, Elizabeth? Really? That doesn't seem to be coming through very well. Now, Rogel said she found the criticism of Boffin deeply unfair. Well, mein klein Noder, life isn't fair. She claims the short-selling ban was not a seal of approval for Wirecard. It really wasn't intended specifically to help Wirecard. And then she told this rambling, convoluted story with a really heavy whinginess of it involving the fact that she'd had to fly from Madrid on a Thursday to Frankfurt on a Friday. Uh, Sweetheart, (laughs) that's like an hour and a half flight at best. Hour, maybe? On Nikki Air? Seriously? My commute across town is longer than that. Okay, anyway, she, she went on to explain she was addled from all this extensive travel from Spain to uh, Germany, okay, and, and how this whole disastrous thing unfurled with the whole short seller ban and, oh, it wasn't her fault, you see... She'd only gotten in that Friday morning from this exhausting flight of an hour on Friday, February 15, 2019. Because that's the day that the public, Munich Public Prosecutor's Office sent Boffin, right, that fax, that infamous fax about, heavens, the sky is falling, short sellers are attacking Wirecard, it's imminent, oh my gosh, Wirecard is being blackmailed. So Rogel went on to describe how she can't really remember anything because it was such a stressful day. Ah, uh, okay. 
<laughs> but she'd gone straight to her office from the airport. Yeah, you landed at 9 a.m. What else were you going to do? Okay, and she was told about this famous fax from the Munich Public Prosecutor's Office by a colleague, the head of the unit, Scheinerhorn. And colleagues told her, oh, this is very serious. And, and other Boffin witnesses who'd already testified, of course, said, oh, yeah, the Munich prosecutors really made a big deal, uh, tried to scare Boffin, uh, you know, all about this whole wire card thing and the short sellers harming wire card. Okay. But Rogel says, oh, it was all so stressful. I had to lead a committee that morning. Okay, so you had a meeting after you got to the office. I'm sorry, is, that, is anybody here feeling stressed out by the fact she had a normal day in the office? Another white-collar worker forced to what? Sit at her computer or in a dull gray conference room and talk to colleagues? Anyway, she said she had a lot of obligations and, and that, well, admittedly, short-seller attacks are not fundamentally reprehensible, but, you know, uh, quote, this is a case where Market participants could have been illegally using insider knowledge. Yeah. And then she had to say, well, you know, uh, the, the prosecutor's facts, it was actually completely unusual. Normally, the public prosecutor submits a written statement to which Boffin can consider carefully and then react. And usually only after a short seller attack has taken place. Admittedly, one really hadn't taken place on February 19th. But in the facts, the Munich Public Prosecutor's Office wrote to Boffin and said, you, Boffin, must come to Wirecard's aid. Quote, there have been one or more calls, phone calls that is, from Bloomberg employees in the last few days Okay, so attack is a slow-moving thing. Including to compliance officer Jan Marsalek. When did Jan Marsalek become head of compliance? Uh, nobody thought that's unusual when we look at Wirecard's site and we look at the list of executives. His title isn't compliance. Huh. Bloomberg is calling for an amount of 6 million euros from Wirecard. Otherwise, an offer from the Financial Times will be accepted. <laughs> okay. The offer from FT employees was that Bloomberg should join their negative coverage of Wirecard, and then somehow everybody would financially benefit. Although, as the facts itself said, uh, FT or employees earned significant sums of money through their negative reporting on Wirecard, but where did they get this information? The only source of the information, and this is from the Munich Public Prosecutor's Office, okay? This is like a USA, USA or, or <laughs> Crown Prosecution Service in the UK, okay? Gravitas here. The Munich Public Prosecutor's source of this information was, quote, Mr. Underl of the law firm Bug. Bub Gauweiler, the lawyer representing Wirecard. <laughs> oh, wow. What law school did those prosecutors go to? So, Hoffeld, according to the IC, did not read 
the facts prior to Boffin's decision to ban short sellers. But neither did Rogel. She said, no, I asked fellow employees, uh, and, well, they didn't doubt that, I mean, how could they doubt the public prosecutor, right? The, the prosecutor wouldn't act on the basis of dubious evidence, right? So Rogel, <laughs> I love this, she, she, she is like the second in command of, of all of Boffin. She doesn't get around to reading any of this. And in fact, she leaves it to her colleagues at Boffin, the lower level staff. And what's more, the one Boffin short-selling specialist, Jean-Pierre Bouchalp, he wasn't even there that day. Why? Because as Bouchalp had already told the IC, I want to say I'm not responsible for the ban on short-selling because I was in dental treatment on the day of questioning. That's right. <laughs> he was getting his teeth cleaned. As MP Matthias Hauer asked him, there's a ban on short-selling. It's an unprecedented, uh, unprecedented event. And you're sitting at the dentist? Uh, didn't your colleagues at Boffin call you? Didn't Rogel call you? To which Bouchard replied, well, um, they have representation and, and they can rely on that. And, and you know, uh, Mrs. Mrs. Rogel, Frau Rogel can is, is competent. And, you know, they, the prosecutor wanted to keep the information uh, in a tight circle. And so they didn't bother to call me. In fact, Bouchard didn't speak to any of his Boffin colleagues all that weekend. It was only the following Monday he sat down and read the files. <laughs> and Rogel? Rogel didn't do anything that weekend either. Florian Tonkar asked her, didn't it occur to you to pick up the phone and call the Bloomberg editor-in-chief and confront him with the facts? But Rogel seemed, well, like a deer in the headlamps of the Munich Public Prosecutor's Office. <laughs> yeah. So, Hoffield, believe it or not, actually came across as, quote, much more reflective than Rogel did. Hoffield at least said, I have no signs of self-pity or bitterness. I'm grateful I was able to serve the state for a time. As Tonk, MP Tonkar noted, that had style. But Rogel? Uh, K. Godshock just raked her across the coals, accused her of not involving the specialists in question in the crucial hours. Uh, MP Kittlestepe said she apparently just wanted to be in front of the wave and stop the criminals beforehand. <laughs> and most worrying of all to the IC was that Rogel seemed to draw lessons from the wire card case just now observing compliance weaknesses. <laughs> oh, oh, honey, really? Okay. But after Rogel's unusual testimony from the IC, to the IC, the committee had one last late Saturday night appearance. Of all people, Marcus Braun's former assistant, Sandra Schuster, 
Schuster told the IC that the former president of the German football club Bayern Munich, Uli Honisch, and chairman of the executive board of Bayern Munich AG, an offshoot of the football club, Karl Heinz Rummenig, were also frequent and welcome guests at Wirecard's Onsheim headquarters. Okay, so now we have to point out some in, an interesting side note about these famous football executive, executives. Honisch was appointed the GM of Bayern Munich for years ago, back in 79, and Rummenig joined uh, in 1991. They both served high-level executive roles. Uh, <laughs> and, and what happened? Honisch was investigated for tax evasion in 2013. When it came to light, he had a Swiss bank account and failed to pay taxes on investment income. And during trial, Honisch admitted evading 28.5 million euros in taxes. Eh, he was found guilty of seven serious counts of tax evasion. He was sentenced to three and a half years of prison, of which he served very little. And he resigned. But I wonder if Honisch maintained accounts at Wirecard. Ha! Huh. Regular visitors to Wirecard and Braun's office. And following Schuster, the Munich public prosecutor spoke to the IC. Let's hear the stunning words of the Munich public prosecutor who is currently investi investigating Wirecard. Again, kids, you can't make this stuff up. Hildegard Baumler Hossel. Let's call her Hildy. Munich's chief prosecutor in charge of Wirecard told the Bundestag IC in describing the job of the public prosecutor in Germany, and this is a quote, I say to my young employees when they start, we are not American prosecutors. I do not want the highest possible penalties to come out of this. We don't want to put anyone in the pan. We want to know the truth. Ah, uh, no, Hildy? We'd really like to see some serious penalties, the dissuasive kind, and we'd like to put quite a number of people in the pan, so to speak. You could carry on meekly in the face of this massive transnational organized criminal laundering, corruption, and political ineptitude case, or you can take a page out of the U.S. Prosecutorial Manual and start taking names and ripping throats. And that, folks, is all we have for Wirecard, episode 22, Conjunction Junction. Thank you so much to my good friend and host, Tom Fox, Compliance Evangelist. My thanks to the award-winning Compliance Podcast Network. I'll be back next week with another episode, and I guess it's time to finally, uh, finally talk FSB and Russian Mafia. So, oh, something to look forward to. All right, listeners, thanks, and we'll see you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Wirecard Saga. The Wirecard Saga is a special production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks so much for listening, and we look forward to visiting with you again in the new year. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.